Welcome to Timeline Scavengers, the podcast specifically designed to last forever. I'm Colin Parker, one of your hosts. And I'm James Anderson, your other host. On this show, we're going through the MCU in historical order, scene by scene, until the end of time. And also the thing about day by day is the other thing. <laughs> I was just about to say, uh-oh, James, we have made uh, we've made an oopsie. We left off a piece of it. But I like the way that you like kind of backtrack a little bit just to throw it on. So it's yeah. like it's like that like uh that one piece of luggage that's on the cartoon car that's on the top of the roof. Absolutely. That's not bolted down and yet it somehow stays with the car and you're like, Whoa, that's crazy. How yeah. do they make that work? Uh, <laughs> it's all about Winfield or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh hey folks, you know what we are here to talk about though? We are here to talk about Agent Carter season two, episode one. We're going to yeah. be starting at one minute, 33 seconds, and ending at 10 uh, minutes and four seconds. We see the signature hat of Peggy Carter. And this time, Slacks, a woman in pants in 1947, scandalous, but that's season two energy, baby. She steps up to a bank teller who asks her, deposit or withdrawal? But when her head comes up, it's Dottie Underwood. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, no. What? And she pulls a gun and says, withdrawal. The bank heist kicks off and all the hostages are moved around. Dottie asks to be let into a security deposit box 143. The bank manager begins to move the vault door and she puts the gun to his back. Moving that handle to the left arms the bank alarm. For a pittance, you'll risk your life to save someone else's fortune. Pull it to the right. The man pauses, and then he does as he is told. Underwood's accomplice steps into the vault and is promptly knocked out. Oh my god, it's the real Peggy Carter. She has stepped into the way and tells her that she is under arrest. The bank teller, that she once called a geezer, then suddenly has one of those cool things that, like, you you know, kind of move your arm and it slips a gun into your hand. And yeah. kapow, now he has a gun in his hand. The kapow is misleading. He didn't shoot it. I just meant, like, right. you know, boom, it's there. Yeah. In the main, Yeah, kachow, exactly. In the main hall, it turns out that everyone has one of these, and all the hostages are from the SSR, and it's America, baby! Guns! <laughs> this is the America N the NRA wants. <laughs> That's, I mean, so so true. But I also want to point out, these are actual agents, so like these are people who know to not just immediately, well, right. <laughs> whoops, anyway. Oops. Jack Thompson steps onto a desk, nope, Jack Thompson steps onto a desk and says, we are the SSR, lower your weapons. Peggy, in the other room, says, you heard the man. And Dottie Un Underwood, nonplussed, puts her gun down. But then she knocks out the old man, and then the two begin to tussle. Dottie is aggressively strong in the beginning and comes at Peggy with all of her might. When Dottie goes for the shotgun, Peggy pulls a giant comical bag of coins, swings, and we get a slow-mo knockout. Remember that for later. Elsewhere in Los Angeles, Sousa pulls up to a crime scene in a quite new fashionable attire and pumping the music stylings of Gene Autry in his sexy green car. He greets Detective Andrew Henry, homicide, who asks if he's the science cop. Great. Sousa introduces himself and puts out his hand. Oh, I'd shake your hand, but I'm one of those suckers who catches a cold, whether it's summer, spring, winter, or fall. Ugh, really? He has a noticeable cough, also relatable. Sousa asks, what do we got? You ever heard of the Lady of the Lake killings? He says, and also making Colin immediately Google something that turns out is made up for the MCU. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sousa says he can't say that he has, and I because that's also what I said. Just Detective remember, Henry. Mm -hmm. Remember, if it doesn't exist in our world, it's because Howard Stark did it. <gasps> oh, my God. Well, okay. Detective Henry tells him that two years ago, the Lady of the Lake killer dropped two dead women in Echo Park Lake. They let it. 
Sorry, he led a task force, did some press conferences, you know, the whole works, but they never caught the bastard. He disappeared, dot, 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 until today. And I want to point out, he doesn't say the dot, 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 but it is heavily implied in his Oh, for sure. Uh, Sousa asks why the SSR was called. And that's when it's revealed that, well, it's the hottest day of the year, but the only problem is the lake don't know it. The dead body is encased in a giant block of ice, and half of the lake is still frozen. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. Frozen. I wonder where that could lead to a name. No, never mind. Back in New York City, Peggy interrogates Dottie. Peggy begins telling Dottie information that she'll give her. Dottie says, I expect so much more from you than this, mocking her, saying, not, you would give me this and this and this, in her, you know, best little British accent. I was, I saw that part and I went, oh, she's just like me. Uh, anyway, so she asks her, uh, you know, where is your technique? Dottie thinks that she can get under Peggy's skin with some pointed lines. But Peggy unlocks her handcuffs and tells her that Dottie only has one chip to trade in. Fear. And Peggy does not fear her. I will say that this this plan works, right? Because she unlocks it and Dottie does not immediately make a move. Dottie's kind of like, well... Right. You know, she's already kicked my ass. You know, like kind of right. knows her, knows Maybe her. She brought uh, that bag of coins with her. Who knows? Right. What if it's what if it's secretly like in the corner or something? Uh, so anyway, so then she. Sorry, I said she, but I should specify now that we've taken a step back. Peggy then shows her the pin that was in the box that Underwood tried to break into. It's a pin that has a little circle with a curved V on it. She asks her about it, saying that there was no owner on the bank registry. Why did you want it, Peg? We both know there are some currencies more powerful than money. Ooh, good line. Thompson, who's been watching the interrogation, is told that L.A. is on the horn. I love this guy, by the way, because he comes in like, it's like, my job is always to interrupt. Like, he's that kind of actor. (laughs) Right? So L.A.'s on the horn. So, of course, he picks up the horn, or rather the phone, and says, How's the surf today, Agent Sousa? We cut back to Sousa in L.A. in an office where the door says, Chief Daniel Sousa. Whoa, big reveal. That's crazy. He's been there for six whole months. What? It's crazy what you can do off screen between seasons of a TV show. (laughs) How was his move? Did he have any pets he had to worry about? Was it easy to find an apartment in in LA in that economy? We'll never know. Back to Sousa, though. He reminds Thompson that it's Chief Sousa to you. They talk about Dottie's arrest and Sousa leaving to open the West Coast Bureau. Okay, so they cover some of the stuff that I was just talking about. But, like, you're all with me, I think, on the other points, I'm yeah. assuming, right? Disney let's, Plus, let's, where are you? Yeah, exactly. Like, let's let's talk to Marvel about it. Uh, moves. Yeah, oh, there you go. Uh, Kevin Feige, talk to me about doing that one shot. Anyway, yeah. Sousa then tells him about the case that he's got, gives him all the details, and says his office is too green. Jack pressures him about leaving the minute that it gets tough. Sousa doesn't let him push his buttons and says he's just understaffed. Surely they can lend him a guy. Thompson thinks and looks into the interrogation room at Peggy. I have just the man for you. Thank you. And they hang up. Peggy is brought in and begins to talk about how she almost had Dottie, and every interruption sets me back at least an hour. But it's no longer her concern. We caught a high-level case that needs eyeballs with experience. Peggy argues that it could be anyone else. She's busy with Dottie. But it's her TV show, and if she doesn't go, then there's no reason for another season. Right, correct. So Thompson tells her, well, it's plot armor. Sousa requested her and her alone. And Peggy sheepishly asks, he did? It's a real burden being everyone's favorite agent, isn't it? 
They get into an argument about Thompson's fragile masculinity and insecurities, clearly taking a step backwards from the season one uh, situation that we got ourselves into, stating that Dottie isn't afraid of him. He tries to be menacing, and it, it doesn't work, and he tells her to pack her bags, and the SSR can actually function without her around every once in a while. And that's where the scene ends. Uh, yep. Or rather, this day ends. She's packing her bags to go. California. I California assume that she way. went on the the plane the next day. That was sort of where I was at with the. Uh, That's sort of what I assumed too. Because, like, yeah. he says, you know, like in a few hours sort of situation, I think at one point. But the other thing is yeah. that, like, she's getting there and it's clearly like midday. Right. And yes, it's three hours behind in the past, but it's not like it's an hour flight to, you know, LA. Right. Yeah. It is. It takes you a while. So yeah. that means she had to have left, you know, like in the morning. Right. Okay. So uh, anyway, so let's talk about just a couple quick little things. And then uh, I am sure you're going to have some stuff for us as well. Absolutely. Um, so before we get into notes, uh, rather a notes, meaning like segments or, sure. you know, big ticket items. I just want to know your thoughts on like the the scenes themselves that we see here. This fight with Dottie and Peggy in the bank vault mm-hmm. is the coolest way to start a season I can possibly think of. You start with Dottie dressed like Peggy was in season one, episode one. You immediately subvert expectations. You subvert them again when Peggy's in the bank vault. And then you have like a, a, a fight, just, a, you know, like a, a choreographed fight. Good old fashioned Six brawl. minutes into the thing. Like yeah, oh it like people should take note of of how this season starts because it is immediately like you you do it the way that that like a serial would be done which is we're gonna do a quick it's sort of like an opening gambit for the season almost like where yeah. it's like here's the here, you know things are in full swing Dottie's still a thing and 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 off we go Oh, so good um in relation to that. Yeah. Um, I have two things that relate to exactly what you're uh, mentioning, which is simply rather uh, more about like rather my like appreciation for how they did certain elements of this scene. Yeah. Um, The first one being that uh, they did a really good job of like making sure to hide like people like Thompson, even though we get some wide shots of people where you could easily see his face. They do a really good job of kind of making sure that that reveal uh, happens a little bit later. Um, but also, just in general, I think one of the cool things about this scene is that in season one, when we see Peggy Carter, and she's walking to work that morning and everything right? that, right? And we get basically this same opening scene. We see her from the front. Yeah. Right? So she's walking through the crowd with the crowd. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can see her because it's her face, right? What's interesting here, to me, is that not only is she going against the traffic and we can't see her, we're seeing the back of her head, which should also kind of imply that it's not her. Right. Which only gets revealed like 30 seconds later anyway. But right. what I also think is interesting when you think about it is that in the first season, she's coming into work, right? Yep. She's coming into the show. And in season two, she's going away because that's exactly what she does. She goes away from New York. Oh, interesting. I like right? that. There's a, that's probably not the situation. This might be one of those things where like, you know, the English teacher is like, now why were the curtains red? And like, you know, they want to talk about like the tonal implications of things. And like the author right. was just like, I was just describing the room. They were red. You know right. what I mean? 
And um, of course, it, the author doesn't have any agency once they've published the thing. So we can say what we like. And I like what you said. Oh, Colin. true. Agency Carter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was, exactly. But anyway. Uh, no, so I think that those are some are two just like fascinating little uh, tidbits about oh, how that works. You oh oh yeah, you remind me. Uh, remember at the end of season one, like the last one of the last things Dottie says is, you know, I can be anyone who maybe next time I'll, maybe I'll be an SSR agent. Who knows? That's true. I actually had forgotten that she says that, and I I feel like that's also a brilliant thing for them to then go, okay. Season two, and then someone's like, "Well, we got to make do on the promise." Yeah, yeah. Um, I also think though that, like, kind of talking about like all my jokes aside, by the way, that I was talking about, like, just because I wanted to be goofy and silly. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing this uh, thing, because I guess I'm in like a really good mood or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, it's interesting to me though that like I kind of feel like this is how a good time skip is done. Yep. Where it's like. You see the passage of time. You see some interesting things. It's like Peggy has done something new with her hair, which Dottie also comments on. Right. Which I think is also funny because like Dottie is trying to impersonate her. Right. But then like now their hair doesn't look exactly the same. And like, you know, that kind of bothers (laughs) Dottie, you know, Um, then also like there's the factor of like, you know, Jack has now that he's in charge has kind of taken a step back in terms of like his personality. Um, Sousa has clearly made some changes and like this, I'm not saying that Sousa looks bad in season one, but you know, not only like between these seasons, which is maybe part of the time skip, but also maybe a part of his personal journey out like as an actor or a person outside of the show. Right. Uh, Sousa looks great. Like, I feel like he, he has like a weirdly more like, like, uh, detailed jawline, Yeah. but they also give him like personality, right? By being like, hey, you know, he's he's in L.A. Let's give him a Hawaiian shirt now. Exactly. But like, New, he looks fun good in Sousa. it. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, yeah. Uh, what what's uh, what's the Marvel thing they like to do? The all new, all different Daniel yeah, Sousa. Exactly. It's that like it's 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 like better suits than they ever gave him in the first season, which I feel like we're sometimes kind of like loose on him. And I don't think that was necessarily like a an outfit like mishap. I think that that was kind of like a. He probably couldn't afford nicer suits or whatever. Now he's, now he's a, a chief. chief. Yeah. But also, you know, who knows? Like maybe it's like, you know, when you were a little bit bulkier because you were, you know, super active. Sure. And like, you know, training for the military and everything like that. And then you probably lose a little muscle mass when you're, you know, slightly more desk ridden and all that other stuff. You know, sure. there's little things like that. But like he's got a great new look. And like, God, a great new car, right? Yeah. That car is nice. That's like the sports car of 1947. Absolutely. Shit. You know what I didn't do? <laughs> sports car, 1947. That's a real quick Google. Wow. Sports cars looked fucking stupid in 1947. So I'm just going to say that that's the best one. I mean, what he yeah. has is not a sports car, but you're, like, I'm just going to say that's it. You're looking for rockets. Look <laughs> Pretty up, much. Rockets were the sports car of 1947. <laughs> Honestly, hey, James, just do a real quick Google of 1947 yep. sports cars. These things look awful. These things are comically bad. Now, I ain't going to lie to you. The boys done and messed up. They went off on a tangent and just derailed the entire show. Let's get back on track, shall we? Tangents. Anyway, so other things that you liked or enjoyed from these uh, scenes? Let's see. I... 
I love a um, I'm you know like two seasoned cops meeting each other, like uh-huh. sort of you're you're science cops. Yeah, sure. Yes, let's go with it. Like, um, I do. I did look up. I did attempt just because of my own curiosity. I don't know if you did this research either, but uh. What the hottest day of the year in 1947 was? Did you did you do that one? Yeah, I was. Uh, hang on a second. I, I have. I was. I think uh, I have a mixed results home. at best. Uh, it was what I found. Um, turns out the weather kind of a uh, kind of hard to get a, a firm grasp on. Okay, here we got Los Angeles temperature in 1947. What I think is fun is that like it when you do look this up though, right? This might be the same thing that you're looking at. You can't hone in on one specific day you can kind of just look at like the overall you, month if you're looking at the thing i can i i did you can but do you have to it, like click on it in a weird way you have to click on it and click on it and click on it yeah oh cool if what you are oh, doing yeah i see it i see it now you that so one it looks like it would April. be that's interesting because it doesn't for me uh, the site that i'm on has it being july 8th interesting I found or, it, wait no sorry I'm so sorry uh, August eighth I'm so sorry interesting okay see now that would make let me, sense let me check out April because I found April a couple times I found hmm. September a couple times and then I found July in sort of a general monthly sense but uh, I found a whole bunch of answers and I was very frustrated by that you know what's I was interesting like, though good thing it's Collins episode the hottest day in August of 1947 in L A uh, comes in at 87 degrees. Uh, I also have 87 degrees uh, for April 13th uh, in 1947. April 13th. I have, uh, I think I saw eight, 89.1 right around April 13th. So, um, yeah. So there's, there's probably some sort of like, not wiggle room. I don't know what the word for it is, but like, well, it's, how you know you, I mean? like, it's what you write down. Like, it's like, right. Is where is your average? Where is your range? Where is your, how often did you take the temperature? Where, what, like, right. One of the many reasons, Colin, I am not and nor will I ever will be a meteorologist. Yeah, wouldn't you like to know, weather boy? Avengers Ensemble. This is season two, episode one. Uh, we've not seen this episode before, so we have some extra stuff to do. Uh, it is called Lady in the Lake. It aired on January 19th, 2016. It was written by Brent Engelstein and Sue uh Su Chang or Chung. Um I they have we've both we've seen both of them before. Su Chung also wrote uh, season two, episode four, which is the one that has all the flashbacks that we saw of uh okay, sure. Agnes that makes Cully sense, and Peggy Carter seen. growing up. Yep. yep. And then uh Brent Engelstein wrote uh season one, episode four of Agent Carter. So the, okay. and I looked them up, there's no updates. They've really sort of uh not done much more that's on IMDb since uh about mid 2010s. Okay. Uh, it was directed by Lawrence Trilling. Trilling. <laughs> the Trilling, Trilling Adventures. Of Jarvis. The Trilling Adventures of Jarvis and Peggy. I love that. That was, yeah, I love that. Uh, he of directed. Jarvis. One, Sorry, Jarvis. Jarvis. Uh, it's hard to do, actually. It is. I think the J gets your tongue messed yeah. up for the trill. Um, the trill of it all. It's Triller. Triller, yeah. Um, so he directed one All other Triller episode Nova of... Triller, Sorry. Yeah. All the, Nova I, I like to watch uh, Triller Novas. Like a telenova? <laughs> yeah. Triller Novella. I'm sorry. Triller there you novella. go. That's better. All right. Uh, What's one more? Dr- uh, 
the triller in matri we're living in a material world and i am a matrilial girl okay yeah 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 Literally. All right. So he also directed one other one other episode of Agent Carter. So we'll see him in a little bit. Okay. Uh, he directed five episodes of Pushing Daisies, six episodes of a show called Invasion, which was not secret. It was sort of like a public invasion. <laughs> um, okay. Fifteen episodes of Alias, one episode of Monk, six episodes of Scrubs, and two episodes of Roswell. Hmm. Doctor Andrew, Detective Andrew Henry. He did not get his doctorate in detection. Uh, is played by Sean O'Brien. Uh, he was on 21 episodes of The Middle, uh, one episode of The Mentalist. Boom, boom, boom. Um, I haven't seen him yet, uh, though the next episode I watch is going to have one Whitney Frost in it. Uh, oh. So, yeah, it's going to be good. Um, I came back to the to the Zoom to, to to communicate that with you on camera, and then I lost my notes. All right, so he uh, was also in the movie Olympus Has Fallen, one episode of Bo- one episode of Bones, we call Girl Mentalist, uh, two episodes of Dexter, one episode of Ghost Whisperer, one episode of Flash Forward. He was in the movie that I really really like, and which is on Hulu, and I want to watch it again called Vantage Point. Uh, I don't think I've seen that. It's about like one event, but it's like six different people's perspective on it, and you like learn new things with each person you you see there them see the the thing. Uh, it's very good. Cool. Uh, Mission Impossible three, uh, of course, because mm-hmm. it wouldn't be the MCU without Mission Impossible. Uh, three episodes of Six Feet Under, one episode of Roswell. Uh, he was in Diagnosis Murder. That's a TV show. I should have written how many episodes, but I didn't. So that's the mystery you have to solve, listener. Uh, he was in the John Travolta movie Phenomenon. Featuring music by Eric Clapton. Um, noted ambivalent about races, uh, Eric Clapton. Three cool. episodes cool. of Murder, She Wrote. One episode of Northern Exposure. One episode of Quantum Leap. And his first credit was in one episode of MacGyver. The original one, <gasps> not the new one. Not the one with guns. Right, exactly. The Elderly Teller uh, was played by a guy named John Gilbert. Some of his selected credits are the following. He was in the movie Hot Wax Zombies on Wheels. Hell yes, that rules. So I haven't those, seen it. I'm just saying that's a great name. Are the zombies made of hot wax? Are they selling hot? I mean, who knows? We like got to find this movie. And the watch movie, it. right? Exactly. The movie is is already drawing me in with its title. Added to the list of bonus content things that we have to do. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm going to do that by just bolding it and then never looking at it again. <laughs> All right. Um, he was in the X Files. Mm-hmm. The video game and not the show oh. at all, just the video game. <laughs> okay, and of course, this role of elderly teller prepared him for the role of a lifetime the following year as Doctor Bill Stewart in 2017's Slamma Jamma. <laughs> Slamma. Okay. Slamma Jamma. He played Doctor Bill Stewart in Slamma Jamma. Yeah, hmm. and that is uh, my Avengers Ensemble. I didn't find the guy who comes in and says, hey, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt. That's my job, though. Um, so, uh, but that is it. Avengers Ensemble. He might be uncredited. Done yeah. and dusted. Thank you. Uh, all right. So, James, uh, just yes. to be sure, do you have any other segments? I have things no, literally do? no other. I'm going to move my file into the done section, which ensures that I won't see that bolding I did. <laughs> okay, cool. Good. Great. Uh, okay, so here is the th- different things that I did for this episode, and I just feel like it's fun to make a comment on my work and to show 
how sometimes not everything necessarily works out. Absolutely. Uh, but it's still sometimes kind of interesting to talk about. Okay. So earlier I talked about uh, the music that plays um, when Sousa is yeah. driving into the scene, right? Um, so like I said earlier, this is the voice of Gene Autry singing Don't Fence Me In, um, yeah. which is his big 1944 hit originally written by Cole Porter. Um, which has also been performed by many other people, uh, including the likes of Roy Rogers in two different films, and also Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters, which is a version that you can hear in the 2018 video game Fallout 76. Um, so I had to make sure that we <coughs> mentioned that. And since we're talking about uh, 1947 coming. and Bing Crosby, I would like to welcome you to, since it's also um, winter, yep. this is probably the only time that I can do a really quick timeline checkup for White Christmas in Ooh, 1947, yeah. uh, because two years after uh, VE Day, they are in fact touring on their act of the uh, like kind of Broadway review type show that they've worked on right. uh, called Playing Around, and that's what they're touring with when they end up in Vermont, uh, and they are helping out the Haynes sisters. Yes, that's right. Wait a the Haynes sisters, the sisters of Freckleface Haynes, the dog face boy, uh, and that is where they're at. So by this point, um, in, in, so the day that this comes out is uh, December 28th. So this will be three days after the actual, you know, white Christmas, right? Right. And so this implies that by this time, both couples have gotten together and they are probably, I'm assuming, still in Vermont or perhaps getting ready to take their act on the road. Who knows? One other, th uh, two other things that happened here. I did look yes. up Lady of the Lake Killer yep. uh, and I was really hoping that that was going to be something. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, man. They're bringing in like some sort of thing. And like, I've seen the show before. So you would think that I would sure. remember that it gets resolved and we understand what this situation is. Right. Right. Completely forgot. And so the amount of times I was like, no, no, but stop showing me the agent Carter stuff. Right. It's embarrassing how many times I try to look up lady of the Lake killer until I realized, Oh wait, no, this is just actually right. just agent Carter. Well, you uh, know what, uh, what, was happening in 1947 when it comes to L.A. crimes? Uh, there was actually a couple of different things I was yeah. going to talk about there. So what we segue. do have... Yep, segue. Uh, so here's a couple of different fun little... Uh, uh, let's try this again. Here's a few different people that were you know, uh, active, shall we say, in 1947. And I'm actually going to go a little bit past uh, L.A. just because there's sure. uh, quite a few, actually. So uh, one of the more, f I guess, perha perhaps famous ones, I, I, sh I say perhaps more famous, and I only say because it's actually the one that uh, shows up first, uh, but that's Ed Gain, Edward yeah. Theodore Gain, yeah. uh, known as the Butcher of Plainfield or the Plainfield Ghoul, which I feel like that, I feel like I could hear that on the radio. Look out, everyone. There's now a, uh, a curfew in place because of Plainfield Ghoul is still on the road. Still on the road? Still at large. There we go. He's on tour. He's on tour. Come uh, see you know his show, but also don't. Ed Gein is who they based uh, Leatherface on. Speaking of uh, Los Angeles, here is your Los Angeles connection for 1947, because in 1947, the murder of a 22-year-old Hollywood hopeful in Los Angeles has never been solved, and that's the Black Dahlia. I got you this necklace, Colin. Oh, great. Wait, it's broken. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, I wonder where that would be. James. I am going to read just uh, of a FBI.gov article on it because it's short. And again, it's probably the most, uh, for lack of a better term, like the closest that we'll get to this actual. Nope. Sorry. That sounds weird. Uh, to, this, to the situation that we're dealing with in the MCU. This is probably right. the closest that we'll get. 
Um, so on the morning of January 15th, 1947, a mother taking her child for a walk in a Los Angeles neighborhood stumbled upon a gruesome sight. The body of a young naked woman sliced clean in half at the waist. The body was just a few feet from the sidewalk and posed in such a way that the mother reportedly thought it was a mannequin at first glance. Despite the extensive mutilation and cuts on the body, there wasn't a drop of blood at the scene, indicating that the young woman had been killed elsewhere. The ensuing investigation was led by the L.A. Police Department and, oh my god, Andrew Henry? No, sorry, that's bad. Uh, the FBI was asked to help, and it quickly identified the body just 56 minutes, in fact, after getting blurred fingerprints via sound photo, which was a primitive fax machine used by news services from Los Angeles. That's a fun little fact. Yeah. The young woman turned out to be a 22-year-old uh, Hollywood hopeful named Elizabeth Short, later later dubbed the Black Dahlia by the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes and for the Blue Dahlia movie out at that time. Love that, like, they were just like, hmm, what if we took these two things and just made it into something else? Uh, she, shorts. She liked to wear crop tops and Top Gun is out, so the crop top gun. The, the crop gun. That's what we'll call her. Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Short's prints actually appeared twice in the FBI's massive collection. More than 100 million were on file at the time. So first, she had applied for a job as a clerk at the commissary of the Army's Camp Cook in California in 1943. Um, and second, she had been arrested by the Santa Barbara police for underage drinking seven months later. I assume because she hadn't gotten the job. Uh, the Bureau also had her mugshot in its files and pro uh, provided it to the press, which, crazy. Um, in support of L.A. police, uh, the FBI ran record. This is worded weirdly. The FBI ran uh, record checks, I think is maybe the better way of saying that, on potential suspects and conducted interviews across the nation based on earlier suspicions that the murderer may have been may have had skills in dissection because the body was so cleanly cut. Agents were asked to check out a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School. And in a tantalizing potential break in the case, the Bureau searched for a match uh, to fingerprints found on an anonymous letter that may have been sent to authorities by the killer, but the prints weren't in FBI files. Who killed the Black Dahlia and why is still a mystery. The murderer has never been found, and given how much time has passed, it probably never will be. The mystery and the legend grows. And again, that is from FBI.gov. So that's the actual FBI. So there's... Since there's um, an FBI person listening to me right now, please know that I'm giving you your credit where it's due. Uh, yes, the, James. Uh, there was a movie called The Black Dahlia, which I recall mm -hmm. being fairly good. Um, two, uh, season one of American Horror Story touches on The Black Dahlia a little bit. And uh, the third and most irrelevant thing, uh, I gave Aaron for a reason, for a birthday, you know, in 2014 or whatever, uh, a book about someone who, like, called the like the black dahlia avenged or something it wasn't mm -hmm. avenged that's but like it was something about like someone doing research into like this like trying to get into this cold case and figure it out um for her birthday so oh, wow. those are those that's are my cool. connections to the black dahlia yeah uh and then uh again th those are that's also technically not a serial killer but that is a I never thought about how this is not a serial killer it's just an iconic killing Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, I think that's also interesting, though, about like how when I typed in like serial killer 1947, Black Dahlia is one of the top hits, which is fascinating. Yeah. I guess kill is probably like part of the key phrase there. Yeah. So it but still kind of shows means up like series. So no, like, uh, no, for sure. I just mean like I think because you're looking up like a killing and deaths and stuff like that. And not, yeah. In 1947, it's showing you 
uh, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so uh, the last thing that I have for that, though, is here are a few more people that were active that were actual yes. serial killers. Um, I'm, I hope I'm getting this, this pronunciation right. Please forgive me if I didn't. Uh, Mayuki Ishikawa, uh, otherwise known as the Demon Midwife. Oh, wow. Uh, Jake Bird, the Tacoma Axe Killer. Oh, God, okay. Nanny Doss, known as the Giggling Nanny or Giggling Granny or the Jolly Black Widow. Ugh. Uh, Rudolph Pleil, Pleil maybe. Um, Der Totschmacher, uh, the Death Maker. Uh, John Christie, the Rillington Place Strangler. Uh, Rhonda Bell Martin, no nickname, just straight up. Just That's a just really called her. Yeah. Uh, John George Hay, I think is how you would do that. The Acid Bath Murderer. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Caroline Grills, Auntie Carrie and Aunt Thally. Oh, shit. I should actually tell you uh, some other information super, super fast. So let me go back. This is their, uh, When I say they're ranked, they're ranked basically on uh, how aggressive their 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 patterns were. Yeah. Um. So they they tell you kind of like what was the more gruesome. So the, these this was in order of one to eight. So uh, Mayuki Ishikawa was eighty five victims over five years. Um, Jake Bird was twelve victims in eighteen years. Nanny Doss was eleven victims in twenty eight years. Uh, Rudolph Pleil Pleil uh, ten victims in one year. John Christie eight victims eleven years. Rhonda Bell Martin six victims fifteen years. John George High, uh, six victims, six years. And Caroline Grills, four victims, seven years. Mm. So, you know, some of these were, I mean, you know, I think they're all obviously awful. But, like, some of them being, like, either um, really short and still kind of high or, uh, actually, no, this is still really short. Five years for 85? Yeah. That's wild. That's so many people. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, Oof. Finally, I want to get to the Gene Autry thing. Yeah. Um, sorry for getting taking so long to get here. Uh, but I wanted to leave him for the ending. So Orvin Grover, Gene Autry, born 1907 uh, and who passed in 1998. Um, he, what, the OG, that's true, he is. Uh, he was nicknamed the Singing Cowboy and was an acting, nope, and was an American singer, songwriter, actor, musician, rodeo performer, and baseball owner who gained fame largely by singing in a crooning style on radio and films and on television for more than three decades, beginning in the early 1930s. Now, Gene Autry is a fascinating guy in this regard, right? Uh, and I think it's fun because there are, there are honestly, I, I only named a couple versions of this song yeah. um, when I was talking about it, but it actually took me a minute to figure out which one this was uh, because I, I guess I'd done something weird when I was asking the question and uh, of like being like, what is this? I think is maybe how I asked. And it was like, you're watching agent Carter. And I was like, <laughs> and I think it's because agent it's, Carter? it was sh- it, like, it's the music, but yeah. it had, they added like an effect to it to show that it's like older music right. and like worse speakers. So then they're like, Oh, that's not what the actual song sounds like. So it's clearly from the TV, you know? And I was like, God damn. Uh, but I searched through a bunch of different versions originally thought maybe it was one of the other versions of the Roy Rogers uh, or one of the alternate Roy Rogers versions then found Gene Autry and I found that to be perfect because at this time James uh, we are in the holiday season yeah we are and do you know what Gene Autry is mostly known for you know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen (sighs) yep Comet Uh, and Cupid 
Yeah. He uh he sang uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He did. He also sang uh I mean he's he's sung a bunch of yeah. Christmas tunes. Uh my favorite thing is that if you search up Gene Autry, his top 5 hits on Spotify are all Christmas songs. Oh yeah. Um in fact actually I think all 10. They sure are. Here comes Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Frosty the Snowman uh with someone uh sorry, with the t- with the Cass County Boys. Mm. So it's an alternate version. That's the more famous one. Up on the housetop. Sure. Um, with uh, Carl Cotner's orchestra. Then Frosty the Snowman, this time just by himself. Right. Up on the housetop again, this time not with the orchestra. Frosty the Snowman, again, I guess it's probably yeah. the same. Original mix, yeah. Album I think mix. it was the same version, but just on a different album. Sure. Uh, the Night Before Christmas, Home on the Range, which is not Christmas, I just realized. Right. Uh, I just did a quick scan, thought all 10 were. And Jingle Bells. Um, his top hit though, again, of here comes Santa Claus has a hundred, uh, I'm going to round up just a little bit, uh, just to the nearest million. He has 110 million Ooh. listens of this song. So like the man was like, yeah, I'm a crooner, but I'm also a country boy. And everyone was like, sing the song about the reindeer old man. And he was like, okay. Uh, and you know, it's actually fun. And I just found this out. Here comes Santa Claus right down Santa Claus lane. That's yeah. the 1947 version, baby. This is perfect nice. timing. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that's all that I have. I know it's a little disjointed, but it's just this thing of like, I was in a, you know, I was in yeah. a mood and I was like, I'm going to follow all these bits and bobbles. And holy Absolutely. shit, I just remembered I actually had one more thing I oh. wanted to point out. I'm so sorry. It's just, it's more of a, a thing where I looked something up and was hoping to find something. Uh, and it turns out that I could not find this. Uh, and so that's why I, I'm going to make a statement and I could be wrong. Right. But I want to specify that because I couldn't find a certain piece of information, it leads me to think that what I'm going to say next is correct. Okay. The scene that I told you to remember near the very beginning. Yes. When she knocks her out in slow motion with the bag of coins. Yeah. I believe that this was done by filming it in regular time and then slowing it down in post-production. Okay. Uh, and then I believe all of the coins like flying through the air were done through CGI. That makes sense to me. The reason why I'm pointing this out or saying this is because as someone who follows uh, a few other entertainers and people who work in the entertainment industry, I know that when you get slow motion shots in movies and in TV shows, uh, they usually have someone who is specifically hired or brought on to set for your slow motion shot mm. because they are working with a different camera actually like fully and and entirely there's like there's only two brands for them or main brands and one of them is not even close to the first one um but the first one uh is one that i think most people probably have heard of which is phantom sure um and it's like a that's it's like the slow-mo camera right uh and so they're actually called high-speed cameras because what you're doing is you're taking uh at a high speed an unbelievable amount of frames per second Right. So that then when you put it at the correct frame rate, it then becomes slow because it's taking all those extra shots that fill right. in the blank. Right. Uh, so I've I've looked for the high speed camera operator for this episode and you know looked for a bunch of different information on it. Couldn't find it, but did see a bunch of different virtual effect people. Okay. Which does make sense based on some other things that we will see in this episode. Sure. But it's one of those things where I went, you know, this could be one of the reasons why like there are a few different virtual effects houses being shown, uh, but and also no high-speed camera operator. Right. Um, but I honestly, a lot of the times I do think that when people do slow-mo kind of like in post, 
Yeah. And they say that like as like being fake. A lot of the times it doesn't look great. Right. Personally, because you're stretching information uh, to last longer than it was meant to be. Right. I think that they did like for for the fact that that was not done with with a high speed camera. I thought it was unbelievably crisp, and I thought it looked really good. So it made me actually think that they had one on set. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that was my yeah, last little piece of awesome. information. Um, that's one of those things again where you know sometimes you do research and you find nothing, but like it's still kind of interesting to talk about in my opinion. Absolutely, absolutely, um, absolutely. That's all I have. Cool. So if you want to raid the Stark Vault, sure. Um, I do. Are, are we I'm changing think, it because it's a new season? Yeah, or? I was just thinking that because like raiding the Stark Vault. Do we want to head out west? Shall we? Shall we head out west? Yeah. Let's head out. Let's head that, out west. Is that, is that a good yeah. one? Or, or let's. I, know, uh, I mean, we can workshop it, but like, because this is also the first bit of season two that we're seeing. Yeah, let's let's t- let's take a turn around the club. The let's take a turn around the arena club. Okay. Um. Okay. And yeah. uh, let's do some. Let's just do some social media. Uh, real yeah. quick. Uh, we are currently still on Twitter. Uh, you can mm-hmm. find us at Timeline Scav. You can also find us at Timeline Scav on Hive. Yes. Um, you can find the Scavengers Network on Twitter at Scavengers Net and, and on Hive. It's and on Hive, Net. yes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Unabashed James, and then on Hive at your host James. Colin, um, what about what about you? I was just that was that that lag was me being like, right? Colin, yeah. where can people find you on social medias? Um, well, you can find me at Colin M. Parker on basically any site. Um, I like Hive, uh, tick. Okay, yes, Hive, TikTok, Twitter, um, uh, Instagram. I'm on Colin and Parker on all those places. I just remember one more place you can find us though, and that's Tumblr. I haven't done anything with it yet, but like mm. again, if Twitter does end up going down and we need to find some alternates or whatever, I did make the Tumblr accounts for uh, Scavengers Network and for uh, Timeline Scav. Uh, and you can find me personally still also at Colin M. Parker on Tumblr.com, which would be Colin M. Parker.tumblr.com or Tumblr.com slash Colin M. Parker. Right. Uh, you can also go to slash Timeline Scav, and that's that show. And I'm pretty sure it's The Scavengers Network. Okay, cool. Um, so there you, there you have it. And uh, one other person that I want you to uh, be sure that you go give a follow on Twitter at least. Look for him on Hive. You know, who knows? Who knows what the British version of Hive is? Hive with an with an a U in it. You've, um, that is Nick Bramald, and he is on Twitter at N B R A M A L D or at his website nickbramaldcomposer.co.uk. Colin, season two. I think of season one as like classic. Season two mm-hmm. is where we kind of get a little bit adventurous, and I'm really looking forward to talking. I to agree you. with that. Yeah. Same. But. That is going to be it for the first episode of season two. Uh, As always, I am James Anderson. And I'm Colin Parker. Uh, Hold on. Colin, you got a a call from the the West Coast, just if you want to pick it up online, too. Oh, yeah, sure. Hello? Excelsior.
The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content.